0: Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer, and I have with me today Rena Van from Strata Central. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing very well. It is lovely to have you with me today on this week's episode of the podcast. Lots of wins and challenges, and that's what we're here to talk about. I am looking
1: forward to getting stuck into them this week. Let's kick off with your challenge, Rena. Well, the challenge I have this week, Amanda, is with a bathroom renovation, and the bylaw is in one case being already passed, and in the other case has been submitted but not yet passed. Now, in relation to the first one, part of the bylaw requirements was that the owners' corporation needed a waterproofing certificate from the contractor who did the work. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, because the credit hasn't been paid by the owner for the work, they're refusing to provide it. So that's one of the items where we have a bond in place that we were happy to refund, but unfortunately, until we receive all the criteria that was listed in the bylaw, including the waterproofing certificate, then we can't release the actual um, bond. Mm. And the other case, which is even a bit more interesting, is that the owner proceeded with doing this bathroom without any authority. She asked us what was required and we said to her, what work are you proposing? And then she provided an outline of the works. And then she said, oh, no, I'm not doing any waterproofing. I'm just removing tiles from the bathroom. And I said, well, if there's tiles on the boundary of the lot, they are still common property and you still need to obviously put an application in. So, we didn't hear anything apart from finding out that the work was starting. We had complaints from the apartment underneath that <laughs> there was order going into the apartment. And lo and behold, there was obviously a full renovation done because the building manager could see that going up with, you know, baths and toilets mm. and everything. And there's obviously CCTV footage in this particular building. So, anyway, so we've said to the you know that we we're going to proceed with mediation, um, this bathroom has been installed without consent we've had advice from their the resident underneath that there's leaking occurring mm. And she said oh no no you know I'll submit a bylaw then we got receive Amanda the contractor's details and it's different from the person who did the work the license is expired mm. and then she comes back and and we said we're going to go to mediation now we're giving you some time you know unfortunately it's not what you know we had asked you to do oh no he's back from holidays now here's his current license which has been updated and the actual waterproofing certificate was one that I hadn't seen. So I looked up the actual um, fair trading website and it said it's actually a separate type of license that you need. So what had happened, we just did some Googling like he would have and found this old certificate, (laughs) which refers to the EPA. So, We're actually now at a standstill, and we're, we're obviously having to include the bottle that the owner submitted, but the committee will be advising against it because, again, this person is not authorised to do waterproofing. So I think it's probably an important thing that throw managers understand, which I really didn't know much, that the tiling licence is different to the waterproofing licence. Mm. So basically, um, unless the person has both licences, they actually can't do the work or certify that the waterproofing is actually approved. Mm. So um, yeah we're a bit of a stalemate in both instances Amanda so um I'm not sure what your experience has been with bathroom renovations, but they are usually problematic because of the waterproofing um requirements
0: yeah so your first example there is a good one for how to do it properly I guess how to set it up in the beginning so that when you mm. do have problems you've got some leverage if you like as an owner's corporation or something to fall back on you've got a bylaw already in place before the work has started you've got provisions in that bylaw, I imagine, that say a bond is payable and that the bond won't be released at all or in full without all the conditions of the bylaw being complied with and one of those is to provide the certificate. Not the owner's corporation's problem. If the owner cannot provide the certificate and therefore the owner's corporation cannot release the bond, that's something obviously the owner has to sort out mm. with their contractor. However, I suppose your committee is saying what if they're never able to resolve this, we yeah. can never release the bond we never see the waterproofing certificate so we don't know if it's been done properly. Mm. And I imagine your bond, uh, well, depending on the circumstances, it wouldn't be enough to cover consistent no. water leakage if there is a problem with the waterproofing. The Owners' Corporation does have, and this is relevant to your second example as well, it does have, as you would know, Rena, a right to go to the tribunal and seek an order that the owner carry out work that needs to be done on the lot or permit the owner's corporation access to carry out that work if the owner won't do it and the owner's corporation can recover the costs of carrying out that work from the owner. So you want to have a look at section 124 of our Strata Schemes Management Act? And also section 132, that's the section that says that the tribunal can make an order that an owner or occupier performs work or takes other specified steps to repair damage if the owner or occupier has carried out work that has caused damage to the common property or to another lot. Now, arguably, an owner who has removed a waterproofing membrane and not replaced it or not replaced it with a membrane that meets the relevant standard, has caused damage to the common property, being the common waterproof membrane, and may have, if it sounds like this might be happening in your second example, be causing damage to another lot because there is water penetration happening. So that's the section 132 where the tribunal can order that the owner or occupier actually carries out the work or pays the owner's corporation for doing the work.
1: Yeah, well, as you know, Amanda, with waterproofing and bathrooms, it's quite I mean, obviously a costly exercise because normally in apartments where there's only one bathroom, that tenant will have to be relocated in this particular instance. So it's not just a matter of um, having the work done but also Mm. relocating the tenant while the work is being done. So it's another consideration that the Ads Corporation has to take into account. Yeah. History, for example. So yeah, so it's, it's fun and games, I must say. It is. And it
0: is a big deal. These bathroom renovations are uh, good on your first building for trying to tackle that from the beginning and put in place the measures that they can now rely on. Hopefully they'll be able to work that one out. But again, there's always a circumstance like your second building where owners just go ahead and start doing the work. And I think the important thing to be aware of there for buildings is that you can't ignore that kind of thing. You do no, I- have to go through those pain Painful steps of enforcing your bylaws, enforcing the legislation, being aware of what your rights are and just saying to your strata manager, we need to tackle this in a way that best protects us and protects the other residents. We can't let this go as painful and costly and time consuming as it
1: is. The committee don't want to let it go, Amanda, because obviously they're also concerned about, you know, the effects and secondly in terms of setting a precedent where people can just, you know, do work. Like, you know, there's that saying, it's better to ask forgiveness than to seek permission. Well, not Uh, in this case. Not (laughs) when it comes to
0: strata, everybody listening.
1: (laughs) Yes, a good
0: one to remember there. Always ask for permission when you are doing work that's going to impact the common property. And if you're not sure, have a chat to your strata manager or your committee members. Exactly. All right. Thank you for sharing that one, Rena. We're going to head across to my challenge for this week. And this is a question that has come from a listener. Helen sent me an email asking this question. And she said, Amanda, can a husband and wife both be on the Strata Committee? She was concerned that that was happening in her building and she'd heard some conflicting views about whether or not that was the case. And I uh, told Helen that we'd have a chat about this one on the podcast. It's something we've talked about a few times, Rena. this rather confusing it can be process of who is eligible for the committee who can nominate who can stand for election do you want to give me your views on this one
1: yeah so basically they both can be if they own separate lots so if they can't be on the committee if they're nominating from the same lot but if they're from different lots, and sometimes people do own more than one lot, they can own more than one apartment or a car space lot, that is still a separate lot that's paying levies and is in someone's name, could be both names. Um, But obviously the election process has to be, correct in terms of who's being nominated? Yes, if they
0: own separate lots, then they can absolutely self-nominate the same way that a sole owner of a lot can self-nominate to the strata committee. No problem. If they are co-owners, they both own the same lot. They can still both stand for election, but they have to be careful about who nominates them. So they can't nominate each other because they are both standing for election. That's what clause 31 of our Strata Schemes Management Act says. They need to be nominated by someone who is not themselves a candidate for election as a member. That's correct. Right. And Helen, I'm not sure if in your example, the husband and wife are co-owners or whether they are owners of separate lots or one of them may not be an owner. Mm. If one of them is not an owner, they again can still be nominated for election because a committee member does not have to be an owner. A non-owner can be nominated for election, but again, must be nominated by an owner who is not themselves seeking election as a member of the strata committee. So, I think for uh, couples, whoever they may be, uh, co owners, they do just need to be careful about that nomination process. And I suppose, Rena, maybe the rule of thumb is just don't cross nominate, find someone else to nominate you.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And also, the other thing to remember too is that if the person that nominates you no longer is is an owner, then that, that will affect you being on the strata committee as well, especially if you're not an owner. That is very true and that is because
0: Section 35 of our Act says that an elected member of a strata committee vacates their office if the person was not an owner at the time of election and the individual who nominated them ceases to be an owner. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting and something to be aware of. I don't know, how many strata managers, committee members, do you think would be tracking the situation of nominators and making sure that the eligibility is still met.
1: Yeah, that is really a problem, Amanda, because um, in most cases, the software that stride um, managers use, if an owner ceases to be an owner then the, and they're on the committee, you'll get like a, a flag from the software telling you that this person was on the committee, are you sure, you know, and you have to obviously make the necessary changes in the software because those details appear on the Section 184 certificates, et cetera. Mm. But, the, yeah, the issue is the person who is nominating a non-owner when they cease to be an owner, that's, I think, where it's being perhaps forgotten and then Mm. that's where I think the trouble may start where, you know, if there are decisions made and that person was on the committee and there shouldn't have been, what ramifications are there if there are disputes in the future? So I think that's one of the really important things. And it's really hard, I think, apart from a manager knowing their own portfolio and knowing the process. I mean, I suppose when you know your buildings and you know your people, you should remember that. but. Mm then again sometimes managers have such a huge workload you know some people have 70 buildings I don't know how you can remember all those details for 70 schemes so no not at all don't even try yeah Yeah, exactly
0: (laughs) so a good question there from Helen thank you for that it's always good to refresh on that process strata committee elections we know can get quite complex and I have indeed been in many a meeting as I know you have Rena where uh, strata committees have purported to conduct their election and it's become quite clear quite quickly that they're not following those processes because they're just, they're hard to
1: know, hard to remember. Well, the other issue, man, is that if the minutes don't say who the nominating person was and how is anyone supposed to know, like let's say a non-owner has been nominated by an owner who then no longer ceases to be an owner, then how would anyone know that that yep. person needs to get off? Yep, exactly. <laughs> nothing in the minutes. So it's a bit of a problem when people don't really understand how the election occurs and what information must be included in the minutes.
0: Yeah, and I think these elections happen very quickly. Either the past committee is re-elected or there are new members coming in and everybody's sort of relieved or happy to get it over and done with and nobody's actually paying attention
1: Exactly, to who's
0: nominating. Yep. Okay. How about a win, Rena? Share with us your win for this week.
1: Yeah, so um, we took courage of a strata scheme last year where the books and records were taking some time to be provided, but there was actually a mediation session that had been agreed to by the owners' corporation and in this case, it was actually a dispute about costs of the managing agent that had been billed to the lot owner, whereby the lot owner had submitted an application for a renovation, had submitted, asked the manager, when do I have to submit this bylaw, by? this is my application, et cetera, what do I need to do? And it sort of got lost on their sort of online submission system, have some sort of portal and it never got to the manager. And therefore, that owner actually had missed the AGM deadline in which to submit their motion and to get a bylaw drafted. There would have been enough time for them to go and get a lawyer and to get it drafted, but it it would have been tight, but there still was enough time if you look at the calculation of the periods of when they they put their application in and when the agenda was being issued. So anyway, so the person missed out and then they, the OZ Corporation itself through the managing agent said, no, we should get the bylaw drafted, which I thought was a bit strange. And they obviously engaged the lawyer, they billed the owner, and then they obviously had to call a general meeting for that owner, and they billed for their time in reviewing the bylaw and disbursements. Meeting was done electronically, so there wasn't that much cost in that process. But you know, i not everyone's on email. People, you know, it's quite a you know big document sometimes with plans and renovations and bylaws. So in, the owner ended up getting like a three thousand dollar bill, which you know she was never notified of that cost. She knew she had to pay, but no one ever gave her an estimate of the costs, and mm-hmm. therefore. That owner then went to the tribunal and then the manager said, Yes, they encouraged the committee to agree to mediation, which I'm thinking, I think it was a good idea because um, it wouldn't be better just to try and settle the costs. Because, mm. really, in a sense, when we, we did go to mediation, it wasn't really a matter for the tribunal, apart from the fact that I think it was put on the lot account, which I think that's made it. Then, then the mediation said, Yeah, that is part of it. We can discuss it. So I was thinking, Why are we mm. here? Because, really, this is a dispute about costs. Mm. Anyway, and so I went away. So we sat there and I sort of, I had done a sort of a calculation in my head of thinking, okay, well, the person didn't know. And, you know, like if we do charge for the costs that would have been incurred, had she had the motion put on the AGN then it's just come to some sort of agreement. So anyway, I had, she had something in her mind. I had something in my mind. It ended up being the same. I had already told the committee that's what we should have done in the first place and not mm. gone to mediation. But um, anyway, so that worked out and she was happy. She's paid the amount now. Mm. The other amount obviously ended up being charged back to the AS Corporation. And, of course, again, our time in
0: mm. going
1: out there and attending for a few hours, you know, two hours and coming back and yeah. So I think it was a good winner Amanda, in a sense that we were able to resolve it. But I think in terms of stray managing agents being able to advise owners of costs, I mean, you can estimate when you know, for example, how many lot owners don't get things by email. There's you say, there's you know fifty owners like getting it by email, times you know twenty pages, for example plus postage you know i mean it's not mm. that hard to work out and she said i would have gone and got a photocopied myself if i you know true yeah so in case any of our listeners aren't across
0: this process that we're talking about it's not uncommon where an owner needs a bylaw pass so they can start their renovation that they say to the strata manager i need this passed i need to start within a month and the strata manager says no problem we will convene a general meeting just for the purpose of your bylaw but you will need to pay the costs associated with convening that meeting depending on the size of the building, those costs can start to add up. I agree 100% that the important lesson here is that that amount should be fixed. In my view, it should be agreed. It should be made very clear prior to anything being done or any cost being incurred (laughs) that the amount is going to be $1,500, three grand, whatever it is, $500 in a smaller building. And owner, do you agree with that? Because the owner might say, actually, no, I can't afford that. I will instead wait for the AGM and then I will just have my motion on the agenda with. Everything else, and there's no additional costs incurred.
1: And we also, Amanda, I need to make sure that the charter committee obviously um, approves the convening of the general meeting for that owner, because we don't have that authority. Although the secretary um, gives the instruction that we can convene general meeting on behalf of that owner as well. But mm. yeah, you can give an. I mean, obviously, you can't. You don't know how long the meeting's going to take. For example, that part you don't know. But overall, you can give an estimate. And, yeah. um, and I think that you know people should be afforded that, that opportunity before that costs are incurred. And then it's like three grand. It's like Mm. um without her knowing exactly i mean had she been told beforehand and and also we also ask people when we give an estimate to ask them to consent in writing that they approved that estimate because you know they might say yes on the phone but then after when we look at the bill it's always <laughs> a separate thing yeah so. or imagine
0: if the bylaw fails and yeah, they're exactly. unhappy the bylaw has gone right, through exactly. and they've had to pay for the meeting
1: Oh, yeah. Double whammy, Amanda, exactly. yes. Yeah.
0: It's interesting that you raised this one because I also had a win recently and it's not the one that I plan to raise for this episode but a very, very similar situation where there had been an agreement that the owner would pay the costs of the owner's corporation's lawyer preparing the bylaw, all of the back and forth that went with that, convening the meeting and, of course, it all fell apart. Uh, when the lawyer's fees came in, they were quite astronomical in my view. They were in the tens of thousands for the work that oh, had right. been done. for bylaw? Um, well. Well, look, I didn't get into it too closely. It wasn't just the bylaw drafting. There was a bit of dispute and uh, correspondence going back and forth. But I became the new lawyer acting for the owners' corporation and the lot owner had ended up filing an application for mediation because they wanted their bylaw made and the owners' corporation was holding back on putting the bylaw forward at a general meeting until this cost issue was sorted out. And the lot owners, lawyer and myself, did exactly what you were saying, Rena. you wished your new building had done, which is not waste time or money on attending mm. mediation. And instead, the two of us got together and we said, all right, what would your client accept? What's your client willing to pay? And we were able to reach a resolution that mm. my client was very happy with because they saved money that they were otherwise mm. looking at spending in the tribunal. And the lot owner was happy because they finally are able to get their bylaw before a meeting and get their work done. That's a great win, Amanda. Yeah. Mm. So compromise on both sides in those situations is always helpful.
1: It's funny, Amanda, also when Strata is telling the ANS Corporation to agree to mediation when it's their costs that are at the centre of the mediation. I'm thinking, well, mm. yeah, trying to settle the, the matter would have been much more um, advantageous, I think, to everybody.
0: Yes. No doubt there is a reason they now have a new Strata Manager. Now, the win I want to bring to today's episode is a new pets case. We have had a raft of these in New South Wales and it's actually becoming a little bit hard for me to keep up with them. Um, we've had a couple since the ones that I was talking about last year, which were the Yardi case and the unpublished McCormick case, which a lot of you contacted me and asked for a copy of that one. The latest publication, and it's certainly not uh, the only one since those cases, is the owner's Strata Plan number 58068 and Cooper. That was a decision that was handed down on the 21st of November 2019 and again it is a case that says a complete ban on pets is harsh, unconscionable or oppressive and a bylaw that does that is invalid. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So uh, I'm not aware of any appeal against this one. There were definitely lawyers involved on both sides, which we haven't seen necessarily in all of these pets cases, and some fairly detailed submissions made. Um, But this was a lady who was determined to keep her pet dog. His name was Angus, and she defended an application by the owners' corporation that she comply with the bylaw and she did that on the basis of saying, well, the bylaw is invalid. It actually can't be enforced. It always has been invalid. This building actually has no pets bylaw because it is harsh, unconscionable or oppressive and under our New South Wales legislation that is enough to render a bylaw invalid. So this is a a message for both owners' corporations who have these pet bans, complete pet bans in place, and also for owners who are thinking about perhaps challenging that position. It's important for both sides to be across the direction that our tribunal seems to be heading in on a number of occasions now Mm -hmm. and have a think about whether or not that complete pet ban is in everybody's best interest, particularly if it's going to be challenged by lot owners and a lot of money and time is going to be spent on litigation. There were barristers involved in this case on both sides, lawyers, as I said, on both sides. It dragged on. It was quite hard fought. The media that came out after this was that the lot owner, understandably, was incredibly relieved and happy that it was finally all over. So you can just think about the trauma that that lot owner has gone through and the committee, of course, thinking it was putting its best. Foot forward. The result didn't go their way on the day, but if you are a committee defending one of these applications, it's these are important
1: cases to be aware of. Mm, Definitely, man. I think. I mean, I've got a few schemes that have that OPEX, so yeah.
0: And it's, look, it's been, Queensland saw this change a long time ago that uh, pet bans were challenged and successfully, and they seem to have kind of gotten over it, gotten over mm. the this practice, if you like, of banning pets. And I think that's ultimately what we're going to see in New South Wales. One thing that I have seen come up a couple of times now, and I find this really interesting, is owners who keep cats And they're allowed to keep cats because the bylaws say that they can. And then they're concerned because they're in a high rise that the cat is unsafe on the balcony. So they put up some safety netting to keep the cat from jumping off, as cats like to do, from jumping off Mm. the balcony. And I have been uh, contacted a few times now, and I think this may be the new safety issue, if you like, in strata schemes – particularly now as we're allowing more pets, owners who have been told they can't keep this netting because it affects the external appearance of the building. I've definitely seen that before when it comes to child safety and child safety nets, but I'm starting to see it now for cat safety. And most recently I was contacted by a vet who said that vets actually have a name for this where cats are injured or killed because they jump off high-rise balconies and they call it high-rise syndrome and it is very common and uh, this particular person is actually a vet living in high-rise has installed one of these nets to protect her cat and she is having to deal with an unhappy owners corporation when it comes to those nets so i'm just putting it out there i think that'll yeah, be a bit of i mean, next- can I
1: ask you about that i mean like yep. child safety yeah, i understand but i mean in terms of aesthetic appearance of a building and having these cat nets, I mean, they look the same or are they sort of like? Yeah, this is an
0: issue. The last couple of examples that I've seen, they are not the same as the child safety nets. There is a company out there that's doing cat netting or wiring and it is black. And it mm. is, in my view, uh, much more visible than the clear, transparent child safety nets that are done by uh, Netzen, which I actually have installed in my own property to protect my child in our high rise. And I don't understand why the uh, the cat company is not developing the same kind of aesthetically yeah. pleasing nets i imagine they're more expensive um, and definitely any client who comes to me with a difficulty with their owners corporation and the cat netting i do suggest that a compromise maybe to propose the more expensive but more aesthetically
1: pleasing child safety yes, nets exactly yeah i agree with that i think man, mean as long as it's sort of like you can't see it but i mean if it becomes an eyesore that's the same as having washer on your balcony i mean what's mm. the difference if both of them are affecting the appearance of the lot yeah so yeah i'm glad that at least you can get that um, netting that's perhaps yeah more aesthetically pleasing and not as an eyesore that's a dark colour that perhaps mm. may clash with the other parts of the building. Yeah, fair enough.
0: So I will put the link to that case. It is helpfully a reported case. It did take a few weeks for it to actually get reported. So we often have a bit of a lag here in New South Wales. We hear about the cases maybe in the media or we know as lawyers that they've been decided. The decision was published At the beginning of 2020, even though it was made in November 2019. So I'll put the link so you can all have a little read of that one. But other than that, I think that is about it for our episode this week. Rena, anything to add? No, all good, Amanda. Thank you. All good. And I will look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye, Amanda.